Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. This podcast is sponsored in part by the Downtown San Diego Partnership, a nonprofit advocate for the economic vitality and growth of downtown. From side-splitting annual dinners to free weekly yoga classes, the Downtown Partnership hosts dozens of can't-miss events each year. Get your tickets now to the annual Taste of Downtown, one of the premier culinary events in San Diego. Experience the flavors of downtown by sampling tasty bites from more than 40 restaurants throughout the Gaslamp Quarter, Financial District, and East Village on September 14th. To buy tickets and learn more about upcoming events, becoming a member, and the partnership's vision for downtown San Diego, visit www.downtownsandiego.org. This podcast is sponsored in part by San Diego Life Changing, real stories of people who are impacting the world and upgrading their lives straight from San Diego. From breweries to biotech and everything in between, San Diego is connecting and empowering people across the globe because doing work that matters is our way of life. Visit sandiegolifechanging.org for more information and learn how you can share your own story. You know, it was extremely hand-to-mouth, but that didn't face us much. There was an underlying sense of certainty that I can't explain. We never worried too much about getting food on the table, but there was times when we didn't necessarily know where the rent of the groceries were coming from, but somehow we always managed. Well, I grew a garden and I had chickens. We made sure that there would be food somehow. From Voice of San Diego, this is I Made It in San Diego, a podcast about the stories behind the region's businesses, the big and the small, and the people who made them what they are. I'm Kinsey Moreland, and in this week's show, a story about how a young East County couple ignored criticisms, survived bad partnerships, struggled through economic slumps, and eventually made Deering Banjo Company the biggest manufacturer of banjos in the country. ready to ship. I'm just putting the, you know, the last bits of magic in there. You know? <laughs> That's Greg and Janet Deering's banjo factory in Spring Valley. 
Over the past four decades, their Deering Banjo Company has made more than 100,000 banjos in San Diego's East County. People all over the world play their banjos, including famous musicians like Bella Fleck, Scott Abbott from the Abbott Brothers, and Winston Marshall of Mumford & Sons. Deering Banjo Company barely squeaked through some of the recessions and won business partnership that forced them to start over from scratch. But it did. And now the company has made more banjos than any other company in existence. The Deering's success was driven by the family's belief that they make the best banjos in the business. That stubborn confidence has been key because from the moment Greg made his first banjo, people told him he should just give it up. But Greg says he knows good craftsmanship when he sees it, which is why he kept at it. Greg learned how to make things by hand from his father. From a very young age, his dad had him building model airplanes and other things, and he wasn't shy about telling Greg when he was doing shoddy work. And It was like very intense, but I never felt pushed. I was, it was a passion. I was eager. I was soaking it all up. I, I, I devoured every piece of it. So I was like in seventh heaven all the years I was growing up. And my dad pushed pretty hard, but, and he would say things to me sometimes like, I know you don't want to hear this, but I really did want to hear it. So it was, it was good. So he gave me a foundation of craftsmanship. He was a master craftsman aircraft engineer. So I grew up around airplanes and building flying models. And I had the foundation when I decided I wanted to build banjos. Greg decided to build banjos because he loves playing the banjo. Has since he was just 13. There's two stories real quick about how I got into the banjo. And both of them revolve around the Kingston Trio. And about 58, 59, one of their hit songs was a song called Tijuana Jail. Mm-hmm. And that song was actually written about a real incident that happened in Tijuana where a casino was opened in Tijuana. They sent invitations to people all over San Diego. And I have vivid re- recollection of my parents having that invitation and debating whether they wanted to go. The secretary at my dad's work had some friends from out of town that decided to go. And the federales raided it and they ended up in the Tijuana jail. <laughs> Oh, and no. one of the other engineers down at the Convair Wind Tunnel, a guy named Ed White, wrote a poem called The Gambler's Lament. Somehow it got leaked out. Six months later, the Kings of Trio was out with a song with that poem as the words. So my parents bought the record. Otherwise, I would have never known about the Kings of Trio. Interesting. So I got exposed to the Kingston Trio because of an event in Tijuana. <laughs> that's, that's like our, our folk process story on the West Coast, you know. So I had that exposure. And then when I got into junior high and was in the orchestra, my best friend was the French horn player. And I was over at his house one day, and he had a whole Kingston Trio album. I didn't know they existed. He took it out, put it on his record player, started to play it, and then he reached over and picked up a guitar and started playing along with the record. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. And I was looking at the album, looking at Chris, listening to the magical music, and Chris had a guitar. They have a banjo. I got to get a banjo. And I was 13 years old. That was in 1963, and I haven't looked back. So, Greg, you made your first banjo at San Diego State in 1969. 
how did that go? Was it perfect right out the bat? Were you just a uh, it genius? Was, it wasn't perfect, and it was um, it was a, a a calling. I had to do it. I needed a better banjo. I was performing more and more, and I couldn't afford one. And and a friend of mine's brother was in the industrial arts department, and we would have lunch down there every day. And I just eagerly wanted to get into all of that stuff. My parents had wanted me to be academic and I'd entered as a biology major and but the, the industrial arts end of it really was calling to me. So I took a woodshop class and used that class to build my first um, banjo. So do you still have that first banjo by chance? Yeah, it's actually sitting on my desk. It was a I built the banjo, and again, I didn't have a lot of money back in those days, and I had an old Gibson long neck banjo. And when I got my the drum part and the neck all done and it was time to put it together to get a grade, I stole all the metal parts off my other banjo and put it on that one. <laughs> and so after I turned it in and got a grade on it, I took it apart to put my other banjo back together. And that... Poor banjo hasn't been back together since. It's but it's sitting, <laughs> the bones are there. It's mm-hmm. sitting on a very <laughs> prominent place on my desk, and it's been there all those years. Did you get an A? No. <laughs> and that's an interesting story. When I was starting to build instruments, and this happened also when we started to have our own company, most of the people I encountered told me I shouldn't be doing that. My professor. When I brought it in for a grade, he looked at it and said, well, you couldn't have possibly done all that work yourself. You must have had help. So he only gave me a B. We become a successful company, and I got to go to an event where most of my old professors were there, and they all came over to me and told me how they're one of the, I'm one of their feathers in their cap of a successful student. Yet at the time, they were all, oh, you couldn't have done that. <laughs> my second semester, I built a guitar. And the head of the whole department was in the class one day looking over my shoulder, and he says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm building a guitar. And he goes, well, you know we don't approve of that. And I said, why not? Well, because it's not representative of the woodworking industry. What? what? (laughs) So one of the keys to our success is I don't listen to that kind of thing. You know, I hear it, but I don't go into agreement with it, and I and I don't let that dissuade my 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 reach and my passion for doing that. The banjo Greg ended up building at San Diego State didn't earn him an A, but it did land him a job at American Dream, a factory that built guitars and other musical instruments in Lemon Grove. He left school before graduating and started working at the factory in 1970. And I showed up the day they got a key, wasn't asked, wasn't invited, but I wasn't told I couldn't come. (laughs) So I showed up and just started helping. And my dad, with all the upbringing I had, had trained me to anticipate and to see the needs and look at the project ahead of the project. And when we would be working on something, if he was needing a wrench, he would expect me to know he needed the wrench and hand it to him before he asked for it. Ah. So I had this upbringing. So I just immediately went in there and helped him do wiring and build benches. And the next thing I know, I heard him say, people are going to want us to do repair work. We don't want to do repair work. What are we going to do about repair work? So I spoke up and said, I'll do it, I'll do it. <laughs> and they said, okay. 
So that gave me a foot in the door. While working at American Dream, Greg married Janet, a local girl he met through church and teaching music lessons. Their marriage was the spark that helped get Deering Banjos going. One day we were talking after youth group, and he, he said, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I want to have a family business making something valuable that will be carried on generation to generation. And he looked at me incredulously. He never <laughs> thought I'd say that. And he said, well, I want a family business too, and I want to make banjos. I, th- I said, well, what's a banjo? And he said, you know, when I'm not playing guitar in church, I play the round thing, that's the banjo. And I was like, oh, that's great. That would be just exactly cool. So that was kind of our first, you know, realization that we were sort of meant to be. Some of the region's best instrument makers worked in that little factory in Lemon Grove alongside Greg. Bob Taylor worked there, and just a few years after the shop opened, Bob bought it and turned it into Taylor Guitars, which has grown to become one of the best-known guitar manufacturers in the world. Greg worked for Taylor Guitars for a few months, but he was making banjo necks for Jeff Stelling, another instrument maker in San Diego. Jeff and Greg eventually went into the banjo-making business together. That partnership lasted until the following June, and he and his wife came to us and said, we don't want a partner. Partners are bad. (laughs) Uh, So we want to dissolve this partnership and we want you to start Deering Banjo Company and we'll contract you to build the banjos. Because he wasn't really a luthier. Mm -hmm. So we did. So in the summer of 1975, we officially filed for the fictitious name and started Deering Banjo Company. And for the next two years, we built banjos for him. And you say we, do you mean... Yeah, I I went down and got the business license downtown with... Wearing my overalls that were all embroidered with flowers and my son on my hip. I was just turning 20, or just shy of 21, actually. And um, they looked at me like, you're starting a business? (laughs) They thought I was 15. They go, you don't look old enough to have him as your son. We thought that was your brother. (laughs) Anyway, we got the business license July 21st, 1975. Wow, exciting. Were you excited, nervous? I mean, I know you have a young baby and... Both of you have to worry about, you know, supporting each other and supporting that kid. So Well, it went very well. And we started hiring employees. And for a while, we were doing much better than Taylor Guitars. And that was good success. But that lasted for in, in, until November of 1977. And Jeff decided that we shouldn't have Deering Banjo Company, that we should just be working for him. Mm. And we said, no, that's not the way it works. And then he gave us a letter that said we had um, 30 days to get out of his building. At this point, Deering Banjos was operating out of a small factory in Spring Valley that their partner owned. Janet and Greg had bought a house right next door to the shop. But it wasn't long after they had bought that new house that their business partnership fell apart. The split was painful, and they lost almost everything. But rather than quit, Janet and Greg moved all their equipment to their own garage and just started over. Right after we split with Stelling, there was a point where Janet thought maybe she should go get a job. Oh, I thought about that, yeah. But I told her, if you do that, we'll never get the business going. And um, so she said, okay. So we kept going. And, you know, it was extremely hand-to-mouth, but... That didn't face as much. Hmm. There was an underlying sense of certainty that I can't explain. We never worried too much about getting food on the table, but 
there was times when we didn't necessarily know where the rent of the groceries were coming from, but somehow we always managed. Well, I grew a garden and I had chickens. We made sure that there would be food somehow. You know, I'd, I would help him in the shop. For the first 15 years, I'd work in the shop part-time, and then I'd do the bookkeeping. And I, we had the phone ring at home, so if I had to stay home with a sick kid, the phone would ring there. I could answer it from home. Even in the middle of the night before we had fax machines, I'd get calls from Europe ordering banjos in the middle of the night. But I was good at waking up and taking, I had a notepad by the bed, and I could write down the order, and then I'd go right back to sleep. Wow. And i get up and read the order in the morning and figure out, oh, okay, we're selling them this. <laughs> and it seemed to work. What was your output in terms of number of banjos you were putting out annually um, in those early years? In the selling days, we were putting out about 40 banjos a month. And those were all high-end instruments. So that was, for a new company, that was pretty good. When we started over on our own, working out of the garage, if we got out two banjos a week, we were doing really, really well. Mm -hmm. And when we also, at that time, were making an Appalachian dulcimer, lap dulcimer, to help. Yeah, what what is that exactly? Can you explain a dulcimer? For it's people? a long wooden instrument with just three strings, and two of them are drone strings, and you... And it's got a major scale fret scale on it, and it's a, a folk instrument from the Appalachian Mountains. And mm -hmm. you strum it with one hand and finger it with the other. It's used for singing along with old traditional songs. We made those for a number of years because um, we could. I could, we could tool up for those real quick, mm -hmm. and we kept food on the table with the dulcimers while we tooled up for the banjos. And we made those for a number of years. We put out about 1,500, 2,000 of them. Um, but when the banjos really started to take off, um, we gradually faded the dulcimers out. When did the banjos really start to take off? Was there a moment? About 81 I think we phased the dulcimers out more like 83 or 84. 83. After that big trip I took across the states, we had a recession in the early 80s. 83, we couldn't sell a banjo. It was so hard, and we weren't didn't have the money to advertise either. So Greg said, you know, you're going to need to get out on the road and go visit music stores, and we're going to have to drum up the business. Mm -hmm. And his mom said, you know, I've always wanted to travel the United States and see the country. And we said, well... What if we pack the banjos in a camper? Would you like to go with me? Greg, you know, his mom and I went together, and Greg stayed home and took care of the kids and ran the shop and made the banjos. <laughs> and uh, we were out two and a half months, 15,000 miles, she and I made all around the country visiting stores. You know, there was no internet, so we just had to pull into a, I'd pull into like a holiday in parking lot and go in the side where the, phone banks were and the phone books were hung and then I'd look up the local stores and the phone books make the calls find out who was interested and then we'd go find them and and show them what we had we took about five or six banjos with us and I'd write up orders and I call Greg here you got another order ship make it and send it out <laughs> get to the banjo made send it out and then that would bring in enough money I could send them some money and they could keep going that's right. He'd, he'd Western Union some money to us because there was no ATMs. You know, I mean, there's none of these facilities we have today existed then. Obviously, at some point you got out of the garage, right? Was it after this trip? Like, what really turned the tables for Deering Banjos as a business? Mm -hmm. 
When we come back, how pop music and the price is right helped Greg and Janet Deering get out of their garage and grow their business. Today's podcast is made possible by a generous supporter of the Monarch School. Monarch School is committed to improving educational opportunities for youth experiencing homelessness. The school's innovative approach to learning empowers their students to succeed in both school and life. I sat down with Monarch's CEO, Aaron Spiewak, to talk more about the school. So Aaron, Monarch Schools helps educate kids who are experiencing homelessness. Tell me about how and when the nonprofit was started. Sure. So the school was started in 1987 by a public school teacher with the County Office of Education, Sandy McBrayer. And she was seeing firsthand the rise in youth experiencing homelessness on the street. And she wanted to do something about it. The nonprofit arm of the organization was then established in 1999. So today our school is a partnership between the San Diego County Office of Education and the nonprofit Monarch School Project. And so together as one organization, we bring together educators, counselors, uh, mentors, community partners, volunteers, and donors. And all of these resources together um, are what help our students succeed. So you're doing a lot more than just what, pe- what people think of when they think of traditional education. Yeah, absolutely. And the way that we're able to do more is because of this unique public-private partnership that we've built um, with our very generous community here in San Diego. Um, This community believes in Monarch's work and our students, and they allow us to bring these resources to the school and this tremendous amount of opportunity, which is really what transforms our students' lives. So right now, it seems like San Diegans are more aware and sort of galvanized around the issue of homelessness. Um, Numbers are peaking right now. You can see it when you drive through the downtown neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing an uptick in people interested in volunteering or donating and helping Monarch schools serve their students? There certainly is a lot of public attention right now around the homelessness issue, and rightly so. It's a serious issue that requires all of us to come together and make sure each person in our community has access to housing, employment, mental and physical health, and of course, education. We regularly hear from communities around the country interested in Monarch's work and our approach to education. So this isn't just an issue for the San Diego community, but really for our country overall. It's a very exciting time for us as an organization, and we're motivated and energized by the investment the community is making and the attention that the issue is garnering right now. And we're excited to see continued progress at Monarch um, and addressing the issue overall in our community. So how can people get involved? Can they just show up and and volunteer? Do you have a a structure, a program that people can reach out to and get involved? Absolutely. We have about 150 regular volunteers um, and they're doing a variety of activities. They're working in our garden. Um, They're volunteering in our butterfly boutique, which is where kids can go shopping and get um, a toothbrush or a new pair of shoes or a clean pair of underwear. Um, They're working as literacy tutors. So we're focused on advancing our students' reading levels as quickly as possible based on the gaps in their education. So we have regular uh, tutors coming in, working one-on-one with students. Mm -hmm. Um, We also have career guidance and workshops for uh, community leaders and professionals coming in and working with our high school students to prepare them 
and uh, community partners in the form of businesses that are hosting our students for internship opportunities and preparing them for the world of work. So there's many different ways that the community members can get involved with Monarch. And over the years, it's grown into a successful nonprofit business, um, and it employs dozens of people, manages millions of dollars in assets. Uh, Since this is a business podcast, and theoretically business people are listening and interested, do you can you share any secrets to your success? How do you, how do you do that? Yeah, I um I actually have an MBA, and in, I was the only person um, in my class that was moving into the nonprofit industry. So it's been an interesting experience for me to take that business experience um, and move into the nonprofit sector. And and a lot of it does translate. We do have the same HR issues, same fun- finance and um, accounting issues as is a for profit. Um, it's just that our bottom line gets reinvested into our organization. So we have investors, customers, um, employees, and despite our tax status, we see ourselves as an important business in the San Diego community um, and that more than anything, we should operate efficiently and effectively. To learn more, visit www.monarchschools.org. Hey, welcome back to I Made It in San Diego. I'm Kinsey Moreland. So what ended up turning the tables for Janet and Greg? Not long after Janet's trip to music stores across the country, the Deerings outgrew their little garage in Spring Valley. The growth was driven in large part by a big uptick in interest in the instrument thanks to the banjo's appearance in pop music. The Deering's knack for keeping up with the ever-changing market by introducing new banjos and phasing out old ones that customers didn't like has helped their business grow too. In 1978, Janet and Greg moved out of their garage and back to the same factory in Lemon Grove where Greg got his start. They grew their business there until 2001. Banjo orders really started pouring in as the instrument became better known across the country. So they eventually outgrew that building and moved back to Spring Valley, this time to the 30,000 square foot factory they're still in today. There have been a couple of big banjo booms. The first jump in sales was powered by a little band called the Dixie Chicks. The band's Emily Robinson played the electric banjo, and musicians everywhere took notice. The Dixie Chicks, when they started showing up as this super group, Janet and I go, wonder where she got the band. Yeah, where'd she get that? We didn't know, we didn't know, we didn't know. <laughs> We'd see it in different colors because it was blonde, and it she, they had colored lights on it, so one day it'd look pink, and one day it'd look purple or blue, and I was like, what is that? So when they came to town, we got to go to the meet and greet, and we got to talk to Emily. So we said, Emily, where did you get your crossfire? Because she was playing the electric banjo. She goes, don't you remember? We're going, oh no. Uh-oh, what don't we <laughs> she remember? Goes, I got it from you from Winfield when I was a little girl. And instantly remembered when she was 13 or 14 years old, she came in on a display. This is a, a, a family festival in, in Kansas. Where the bluegrass championships are. And... And she kept coming into the booth and playing the electric banjo. Coming into the booth and playing the electric banjo. It's just, I'm in an all-girl um, electric bluegrass band, rock and roll bluegrass band. 
we need one of these. And she kept coming back. On Sunday, the last day of the festival, she brought her dad back. So we made her a, a, a below wholesale artist price, and they went home with the instrument. And we didn't, you know, we help artists. She was obviously a, a good artist and, 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 and just had lots of passion and enthusiasm. So we did that, and... We never related that we didn't little girl realize that, to the Dixie that Chicks. That was Emily <laughs> and the Dixie Chicks. That's amazing. Yeah. So, did you always know that during banjos that your business was going to be successful? Was there ever a question about? I don't know if this is actually going to work. Actually, we had a pact with each other that whatever happened, we were not going to quit. So, what makes it successful is that determination of not giving up. We'd taken a business class that was put on by the Small Business Administration. And the gentleman that was teaching the class, his credentials were that he'd had a chain of toy stores and had gone out of business. And he kept telling story after story of businesses that went out of business, trying to inspire us to make it through our first year. And we were able to observe that every single one of those businesses that had gone on business had gotten to a set of problems and chosen not to deal with it. And they quit. Every one of them could have kept going. So we made a pact with each other that no matter what, we wouldn't quit. And we've had a few times where we've had to draw on that. Oh, yeah. Sometimes it's, it just seems daunting. But if you have that determination, well... It's not going to be easy, but we're not quitting, so we just have to find the solution. And sometimes it doesn't appear right away. You have to be willing to just struggle and just go anyway, and it, the solution will appear if you don't give up. What's the most daunting it's ever been? What, what was that insurmountable-seeming challenge? That We've you... had a number of them over the years. Mm -hmm. The first one that hit us hard was when Carter was in office and the interest rates went through the roof. And we had a variable mortgage on our house. And our mortgage interest rates hit like 18%. Um, that was really, really hard. We got through that. Um, and over the years, the recession would hit. And people, our friends would go, how are you doing in the recession? And we'd say, well, banjos are always in a recession. We don't really know, even notice it. Yeah, we kind of float <laughs> under the radar. We're too tiny of a business. But the, the thing at the end of 08... 2009 was a mm -hmm. hard year for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Luckily, we got through it. And I we had the opportunity to, I completely upgraded our whole line of banjos, and it helped us immensely. And, and we printed a smaller catalog and offered things, all the accessories of different price ranges. So if they couldn't afford one thing, they could afford something else. Mm -hmm. We just figured out ways to open every door and every window to make some money to keep the business going. The other side of not quitting is not saying no. It's like a number of years ago, we were at our trade show up in Anaheim and these three people walked up to me in our display and they said, hi, we're from The Price is Right. Would you like your product to be on our show? And I said, you bet. <laughs> and then they went, really? And I said, what do you mean really? And they go, well, we've been here all day and you're the first one that said yes. We couldn't believe it. We thought, what are people thinking? We, they had us on their program several times a year for years. Yeah, we were about 10 years on The Price is Right. You know, oh, wow. It was great. We became a household name. Yeah. And free had, marketing. That's, that's amazing. Right. All we had to do was say yes. <laughs> <laughs>
Another big banjo boom hit in the last few years when the band Mumford & Sons rose to fame. The banjo is part of what set that band apart, and suddenly bands and musicians everywhere were trying to emulate that sound. But gaining popularity can be a tricky thing. The funny thing about pop music is there's always a backlash. So if anything gets too popular, then all the cool kids are like, oh, I don't like that anymore. So it seems like maybe there was a little bit of a banjo backlash there for a while um, in response to Mumford & Sons kind of getting a wildly popular. Did you did you feel that backlash? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So our sales went down a little bit and struggled a bit. You know, you get creative, mm-hmm. figure it out, go on. There's a certain amount of how our sales are going to be affected that are dependent on events that we can't control. So we just got to concentrate on what we can do and just keep putting our best foot forward. Um, Yeah, we came out with a banjo ukulele. Hmm. And that was a wonderful new product that's been really successful. And we just, our six-string banjo that's tuned like a guitar has been growing and growing and growing, but all of our models were in the high end. And we've wanted to do a good time six string, which is our lower price one. Mm-hmm. But that requires a redesign and retooling because we couldn't make it like the five strings. Mm-hmm. And we this last year, there was in our industry, in guitars and banjos, there was a big drop in sales that we st- none of us could still. I'm convinced it was because of all the campaigning in the election year. People were afraid. The media was fear-mongering to such an extent that people just weren't going to the music store and buying stuff. Hmm. Um, so we needed to, to increase our customer base in the lower price range. So we finally came out with the six-string good time, and it's been doing very well also. So we, we, we will find products that we can get into that will help us get through the hard times. I was looking over your product history. You phased in a lot of new things and you phased out a lot of new things. So maybe just, uh, we don't have to go through every single thing that's been phased in and phased out, but what have you learned over the years? What have customers told you they want and what is the market kind of, how has the market shifted what you do? Okay, well, we're, another unique thing about our company is we work hard to build the the banjo that our customers are asking for Mm -hmm. where all of our competitors build the banjo that they want to build and tell their customers that's what they have to have Hmm. different mindset and many years ago in our dealings with different professional musicians we kept running into banjo players that were earning their living playing electric guitar in rock and roll or country bands because the banjo didn't amplify very well when you put a pickup on a on a banjo, it turns it into a microphone and it feeds back really bad. Mm. So we built an, a, a solid body electric banjo. Oh, wow. And when we first brought it to the trade show, we were laughed at. Oh, we were laughing too. We knew it wasn't. It was just an attempt. We were trying to say, hey, we're trying here. But anyway, we filed for a patent on it. We got a patent, um, but pretty soon top pros started picking it up because they needed that instrument to, to play in certain environments. Jens Kruger, that was just with us, mm-hmm. um, made a lot of money playing it when he was younger in Europe to big rock and roll crowds. And um, so it became a pretty staple thing in certain areas, and we sold a lot of them. Um, and that, that instrument went very well in, 
And but about six years ago, seven years ago, we met another an, a young man that had developed a new pickup for the banjo that didn't turn the banjo into a microphone. Mm. And lucky for us, he was a Deering banjo player and wanted to work with us. Nice. So since, and it's called a Cavanjo pickup, and since we've had that pickup, the need for our Crossfire, our electric banjo, has dropped off. We still get an order occasionally, Mm -hmm. um, and we haven't discontinued it, but with the Cavanjo pickup, every one of our banjos will work now. Staying on top of research and development and introducing new products that customers want has been a key part of the Deering Banjo Company's success. But another really important ingredient is something Greg and Janet call magic. A lot of different music is magic. And when you are able to recognize it and experience it, it becomes an amazing phenomenon. And we regularly will ask our new employees, we'll say, do you think we make banjos here? (laughs) And they'll go, don't we? Yeah, we make banjos. And I said, Mm. we do. But I'll write on the board, I'll write the word magic. And I said, that's our main product. Wow. And we work hard to make sure that every banjo we send out is full of magic. And that that helps all people have Mm -hmm. a wonderful experience. I bought a Deering banjo once. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, this isn't a happy story, though. My friend was, had cancer, and she all she wanted was a banjo. So we did a fundraiser for her. Raised, I think your your cheapest one is five hundred bucks. So we mm-hmm. raised five hundred bucks and got a banjo. And there's a video of her playing that banjo. Ah, <laughs> that's oh. nice. Sorry. Yeah. But seeing her play that banjo it was just so amazing. Sorry. <laughs> That's what makes it all worthwhile, is we, when we can see that it can make a difference in somebody's life. I think we already touched on the best thing, is the magic, but what's the hardest thing about what you do? Well, when you're in business and you are growing a business, you run into ceilings that seem like we're never going to get, never going to get there. And it's just like constantly bumping into the ceiling. But underneath it all, you know that it's artificial and it's held in there by our own considerations, but that's really hard to conquer. And that's always been the hardest thing for us. Like many, many years ago, we had a certain target that was selling $700 a day worth of banjos. And it was so bad that Janet would sometimes be in tears over trying to achieve that target. This This is is, like late 80s. That was just a horrendous amount of money to think I could earn in a day. (laughs) (laughs) And and we obviously blew through that target and left it long before. And, And then we hit another ceiling and we blew through that one. And we're hitting another ceiling now, but we'll eventually blow through it. And that's the hardest part. Mm-hmm. That, that and pulling all the different materials from everywhere, getting the plating done, you know, just the number, there's 150 parts on every banjo. So if you're short one part, that banjo can't be completed. Getting all that organized and having all the challenges of, you know, having good quality team to making them, not making any mistakes. You know, we think 
we thank our blessings every day for having a good crew that is reliable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So all those things, all the logistics is, is one of the challenges. Speaking of your crew, and both of you had that goal early early on to create a family business. Um, so you have a son and a daughter. And I know you're, do they both work for you? Is, is this a family business? Our daughter works with the company, but our son does not. He is a computer IT in the Houston area. Mm. And he's just always marched to a different drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, but whereas our daughter has always kind of been a match for us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so what does she do? What's her role in the business? She is in charge of market uh, expansion and, and public relations. She does a great job with the artists. She's just very creative and very capable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when she first came, you know, she was out on her own for a while, worked for our church. And um, when she came back in and wanted to be part of the family business, she was real excited about expanding the company and artist relations and that kind of thing, but was adamant about not wanting to ever have to run the company. <laughs> she doesn't want my job. <laughs> but that's gradually changing. And we're gradually getting the company more organized to where when we eventually do turn, or she does eventually become the main CEO, Mm -hmm. it will be more manageable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she's starting to see that she could step into that role. And it's part of what her resistance was is when she steps into that role, it will be her vision and it will go in her direction and it can be pretty intimidating for somebody like her to feel like she's going to fill our shoes. Right. Because she's not us. Um, but in actuality, she's got a tremendous amount of her own talent, her own horsepower, her own vision. And if anything, it will take the company to, to greater heights that we would have never gotten it to. So we have reached the point where unless there's anything you two want to add, I would love to hear the banjo. Who's going to play? Both of you? One of you? Okay. All right. Thanks for listening to I Made It in San Diego. I wrote and produced the show. Scott Lewis helped produce and edit it. And Adam Greenfield mastered and mixed the show. Visit voiceofsandiego.org slash podcast to learn more about our weekly Voice of San Diego political affairs show, our Good Schools for All Education podcast, the Kept Faith Sports podcast, and all the shows in the VOSD podcast network. If you like the show, go to voiceofsandiego.org and click the donate button. Or if you'd like to sponsor it, contact Aaron Zlotnick at aaron at vosd.org. Oh,